Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Today we're going to have a very interesting show and an extended program uh, spanning actually up to two hours. Uh, For those of you who listen with any regularity, you know that you can listen to this show from our website at www.abetterworld.tv where you can also subscribe to our newsletter that goes out once a week to describe the radio show here on Blog Talk Radio as well as the TV show, which is aired on Manhattan Community Cable Television out of New York City. So welcome. I'm so glad to have you again. Many of you know I am a holistic psychotherapist, a stress management consultant, writer, entrepreneur, teacher, and uh have been hosting uh, TV and radio for almost 20 years now. So I continue on with A Better World on Blog Talk Radio to make a difference in this world, to contribute something of education, something uplifting, something inspiring, so our listeners and viewers can gain uh, a new perspective and a richer life from listening. So tell your friends, forward our newsletter out to others you care about so more and more people can participate in being part of a better world. Because as Jesse Jackson said, Reverend Jesse Jackson, we may have all taken different boats to get here, but we're all on the same boat now. And isn't that true? So in that light, I want to tell you that our uh, first hour of today's show is a health and wellness roundtable with two extraordinary healers and physicians, both of them, uh, who will be joining us very soon is Dr. Adiel Teloren, known as Dr. T, who is born in Jerusalem, Israel that is, where he currently writes books, sees patients in some 15 different clinics, and lectures several times a year. He also seesaws and shuttles between Jerusalem, Israel, and other parts of the world, but especially Minneapolis, where he has his own clinic as well. Uh, Dr. Teloren has two doctorate degrees, one in chiropractic, one in general medicine, and he has a background in music, 
He taught conducting and has performed as a professional musician and soloist on three continents. Talk about being holistic. I love it. It's great. So uh, additionally, he's known as uh, an author, an innovator, an educator, and a healer. And one of the points I can make about Dr. Tel Oren is that he really has science as the backbone of what he teaches. Yes, he's very involved in helping people understand natural principles of health, medicine, nutrition, and ideas of sustainability. But underneath, he is a scientist, and it's uh, with great joy that I say that because so many people are out in the world discussing different holistic uh, practices and modalities, but they actually aren't grounded in science. So while what they say may be somewhat true, um, sometimes largely true, it isn't completely scientifically accurate. So today, for the first part of our roundtable, Dr. T will be going into debunking myths that have been floating around the atmosphere about alkalizing the body. And the clarity that is needed on that will soon become apparent. The second part, we will be joined by Dr. Norman Suhu, who has been a guest on our television show, for those of you who watch that with any regularity on Manhattan Cable Television. And Norman Suhu is an acupuncturist, a naturopath, and a practitioner of biosynteny, which is a healing modality originated in Brittany, France, that involves the use of small imprinted ceramic discs which shift the energy field of the body in any number of different ways. So Dr. Suhu will be joining us at around the uh, half part of the uh, roundtable and join us to discuss a lot of his work using biosynteny. And uh, Dr. T will be joining us for, if not most, uh, probably most of that. Then please note in an expanded version of today's program in light of a conference taking place, the Breakthrough Energy Conference in Hilversum, Netherlands, just outside of Amsterdam that I will be emceeing and moderating panels at November 9th through 11th. We have invited on one of the speakers of that conference, Michael Tellinger from South Africa, who he will be calling in. He is a scientist, an author, an innovator, and he has been involved in the archaeological activity of uncovering and discovering ancient civilizations about which we have known very little. So it will be a real interesting um, adventure to stay on the show. Tell your friends to join us at abetterworld.tv so they can tune in and hear Michael Tellinger as well, as well as learn a bit about the upcoming conference. So with that said, I would like to introduce you all to Dr. Tel Oren. Are you on the line, Dr. T? Yes, I am. Shalom, shalom, and welcome to our show, A Better World. Shalom, I'm glad to be on the show. I'm so glad. I was telling the audience Dr. T, that I was uh, listening to you speak uh, just last night at the Open Center in um, 
Midtown Manhattan, New York City, about uh, the myths that surround the whole idea of alkalizing and pH. And there is a lot of uncertainty about it, a lot of myths. And uh, for the first part of the roundtable, I would love for you to open up the subject and speak uh, about what you feel we are suffering from in terms of uh, misinformation and correct, correct our misunderstanding. Well, that's a big task. <laughs> um, <laughs> since we are all, all exposed to a lot of books, uh, popular information and articles, and many people are um, jumping right in the bandwagon of speaking about pH, and we have all those alkalinity coaches and people who are selling all kinds of products that make a lot of claims, some yes. of which are very, very expensive. And maybe they have some benefit, perhaps they have some value, but if people knew how much that value is disproportional, uh, not appropriate to the amount of money they spent, maybe they would uh -huh. have prioritized a little differently. Maybe they wouldn't have spent $4,000 on a certain machine and uh, decided to do things that are less expensive and more efficient and uh, oh, for example, you are you are implying uh the notion of uh, certain water filter systems that claim to alkalize the water well that claim is probably is correct they are alkalizing the water the the important thing is how crucial is it for us to alkalize our water how yeah it's a great question it? and what's what's exactly. the answer from your point of view um well uh, for some situations, it might be of some benefit, but being that uh, people are often drinking too much water, and we don't need to drink that much water, in nature, there are no rules like let's drink eight glasses of water per day. Uh -huh. That rule is man-made. It is not nature-made. There has never been a good scientific study that proves that we have to drink eight glasses of water per day. In yes. fact, in nature, if you look at most uh, land mammals, you see that they often, if they are herbivores or if they are animals that are similar to us in structure or in anatomy, they don't need to drink much water. They get almost all of their water from metabolism. Their own cells make water as a part of the process of creating energy out of carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. Mm. In the process of making energy, you are creating water because to oxidize foodstuffs, you create protons or hydrogen atoms which bind the oxygen we breathe in, and together they form water, H2O. Therefore, every time you eat you manufacture water in your cells. The reason we are thirsty is often the fact that we drink too much water and then we reset our hormonal patterns. And I don't want to get into all the details of the hormones that are in charge of our electrolyte balance uh, in a way that would create a sense that we need even more water and it becomes similar to an addiction, in a way. Ah, um, because you're resetting the body's um, 
interest in water to a higher level because of repeated water intake. And then exactly. the body starts to seek that level, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. You have reset yourself hormonally. But if you stop doing it gradually to get rid of that addiction, so to speak, you yes. end up feeling perfectly fine drinking very little. I'm very happy drinking one glass of water, maybe two, every week. Every even, week? Every week, yes. Unless oh. I'm unless I'm uh, sitting in an infrared sauna and sweating a lot or going on yeah. a trek in the Himalayas and feeling yeah. really hot and sweaty, or I'm in a very dry environment such as a 12-hour uh, airplane flight, yeah. those are the situations where, where I might drink some more water because I feel the thirst as a result of the changed environment. Yeah. But other than, that, other than that, I never feel the urge to drink water, and I feel much healthier for it. Most people that feel in a certain way that uh, I can associate with their excessive water drinking, and you can sometimes see their electrolytes on, on their blood tests are slightly off, you mm. can uh, actually tell them to, to start drinking less water and they start feeling better and better. But because we are told to have eight glasses a day, those machines that we buy to alkalize the water appear to be more important than they really are. Mm -hmm. Would we care how alkaline the water is that we drink if it is only for one or two glasses a week? And, <laughs> and besides the fact that if you only drink one glass of Coca-Cola or something else that is rich with phosphoric acid, and it is extremely acid-forming in the body, uh, it would take you hundreds of glasses of alkaline water to undo that one glass of Coca-Cola. To balance it out, yeah. Yes. So how important is it really? It would be much more important to mineralize the body, to add magnesium bicarbonate perhaps to our water, and to just avoid toxins in the environment, which are obviously increasing acidification within My. our tissues than to spend that kind of money just on getting a little alkalization of our water. Yeah. What, would be another one quicker, what would be another way? This is very interesting, Dr. T. What would be another way someone could much more cost-efficiently alkalize their water if they were only going to be drinking well, something approaching what you do. Uh, well, if uh, if they approach what I do, they wouldn't even bother alkalizing the water because it's just such a drop in the bucket. Yeah, it's just not worth the hassle in that situation. Well, what do you uh, I would think never about bother. the work? What do you think about the work of Dr. Batman Gelich, who wrote "The Body's Many Cries for Water," who whose premise is that. Uh, most illnesses are actually simply a, a symptom of dehydration, and that if simply by increasing our water intake, we could resolve many of the illnesses facing humanity. Uh, I'm aware of that work. I have uh, looked at it, and I have not seen any supportive evidence. I have not seen real science. It's more, more of an, a hypothesis, in my opinion, the way it is uh, written, it's more of a, an idea. 
a conjecture. Yeah. And it's true that a lot of people today um, are toxic and eat extremely proteinaceous meals, which increase dramatically the um, uh, acidity in their tissues, especially sulfuric acid, nitric acid, acetic acid, lactic acid, and uh, sulfuric acid or acid rain, all of mm -hmm. which are resulting from metabolizing protein for energy and as a result of eating too much protein, which is really one of the underlying sicknesses of society or causes for many chronic illnesses in our society. And it's conceivable that when you eat foods that are highly proteinaceous, you become more like the carnivore that our physiology does not call our, for our body to be. And if you are more of a carnivore in what you choose to eat, you may become more thirsty. And we do see in nature that animals that are carnivorous tend to want to drink a lot more. I see. In a way, so there's that is... relationship between protein intake and yes. water intake. There is. Uh, and partially it is as a result of toxicity yes. associated with excessive reliance on protein in our diet, uh, which is perfect from the perspective of the meat and dairy industry, but mm -hmm. it is not from a perspective of our physiology. In a situation like that, perhaps people would feel the, the urge to drink more water, and many of them would not drink as much as, uh, as they should until they hear about that eight glasses per day rule. Mm -hmm. But if they eat differently, if they eat as nature intended, which is a lot less protein, they would still drink too much water because of the rule instead of yes. abiding by the physiological need. Yes, I and understand. And that would lead to excessive water intake, even with people who are more conscientious and eat less of the protein. Now, you are hovering around this uh, carnivorous idea that I would like to just raise the question begging in the air, which is, do you believe that human beings are naturally inclined to eat um, animal-based protein or that we are not inclined or best off eating animal-based protein? Um, if we look at paleoanthropology and study it thoroughly, which I have done quite a lot and I have a six-hour seminar covering the entire uh, adaptation uh, of the human body over millions of years to its environment. And if you also look at comparative anatomy, and if you look at natural surroundings and what's available uh, during our evolutionary times, and if you don't make the mistake of always looking just onto the last 30 or 40,000 years where humans were hunter-gatherers mm -hmm. for reasons of survival, but not necessarily for optimal health. Mm -hmm. If you look at our real adaptation, which exceeds 100,000 years ago, when mm -hmm. we all came from the eastern part of Africa, and we look at the environment habitat in those areas, we always see again and again 
uh, especially when we compare our, the structure of our teeth and the type of movement of our jaw, we will see that the human body is really not designed to be um, hunting other mammals or other animals, and we don't have the tools. And we're talking about prehistoric times before the, the time of tools, before we had a spear or an arrow and bow. We mm-hmm. could not hunt with our own fingernails. We were not fast enough. We didn't yes. have the strength. And it is very inconceivable that uh, that flesh was a major part of our diet. So in that situation, if you look at the whole picture, which I don't have the time to provide right now, mm-hmm. you would see that humans, even if they were not 100% vegan, I would never make such a claim because uh, insects are edible and mm-hmm. crustaceans are edible, mollusks. Fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, fish is harder to catch, but mollusks are very easy. Yeah. I mean, every human is faster than a snail. <laughs> yes. And we could always, uh, you know, eat seashells or clams in their natural raw state because they're soft. You just have to use a rock to open them up as other mammals do. Yes. It's very easy, therefore, to see that perhaps we were not 100% vegan. We did have some of our calories obtained from flesh, of other animals, but those animals today are extremely polluted with mercury and other toxins, are not advisable to eat in any large quantities, and mm-hmm. being that most of us are still land mammals and living in environments where many of those creatures are not easily available, it is um, fairly plain to see that the majority of our foods were plants and plant-based, and therefore the entire metabolism and physiology thereof would not have been similar to what it is today. Mm-hmm. And if we ate more of that uh, food that is plant-based and less processed and so forth, we would have a situation where we would be a lot healthier, we would be stronger than a tendency to disease that we have today, and we mm-hmm. would not even be looking for pH miracles. We would not have to look to the Mm -hmm. pH to become a bandwagon, to jump on and to write books that we could sell that somehow try to sensationalize the issue of the alkalinity and acidity, causing people to obsessively use dipsticks uh, that they put into their urine, ignoring the physiology of the kidneys. You know, if the kidneys are not functioning well, that test is useless because you're ignoring the fact of what the kidneys are doing. Also, if you are going to be telling yourself that your urine is too acidic and you try to alkalize your urine, that's a horrible misunderstanding of physiology. We I always... mean, that would be almost like, uh, based on what I understood from you yesterday, and I, I have understood this also to some extent, it would be like alkalizing the stomach. It's completely against nature. Correct. The urine has to be acidic in order to help us get rid of the acids that are formed within our cells as a result of normal metabolism, even of foods that are considered alkaline ash. There's no such thing as metabolizing of foods 
into an alkalinity. Every food, even the ones that are the least acidifying, even vegetables that are considered alkaline, even vegetables contain carbohydrates which we have to metabolize to energy and in the process we are releasing protons or positively charged hydrogen atoms which is by definition increasing the acidity of the environment within the cell. Mm-hmm. So everything we eat that creates energy creates acid. It's just a question of how much and it's a question of what mineralization do we have or mineral content we have in the food to help us neutralize some of those acids. And what are we doing? So in other words, every vegetable or vegetables that are considered alkalizing in their effect, Dr. T, will also have a certain proportion of acidifying effect as well. And as you're saying, it's a question of proportion, how much per vegetable. Yes, and also how much mineralization do we and get, yes. or how many minerals are in that food. Which you know, will have pond- the, a buffering, uh, alkalizing effect. Y- yes, well, it would be neutralizing of the neutralizing. acids yes. that are especially difficult to get rid of. You know, most of the acid that we manufacture as a result of metabolizing carbohydrates and fats are the acids called carbonic acids. The Mm -hmm. carbonic acid we can get rid of through exhalation in carbon dioxide, and also it is excreted by eliminating protons through the urine, as long as the kidneys are functioning. So people who try to alkalize their urine, they will die. And people who try to ignore the fact that we need to get rid of these protons through the kidneys, they will not be healthy. We need to get rid of those protons or else the tissues will remain and increase gradually their own acidification. So what then, Dr. T, do we do? Please uh, let me uh, let everyone know we are speaking with Dr. Tel Oren from Jerusalem, but he also has a clinic in Minneapolis, and he travels the world doing a lot of teaching around the subjects of health and nutrition and uh, holistic thinking in many ways of regarding sustainability. He does a tremendous amount of charity work around the world as well. In fact, the last time I received an email from you, I think you were trekking through the Himalayas or through Nepal um, involved in some very interesting project. You are right. listening to A Better, a Better World uh, with Mitchell J. Raven. We are engaging a health and wellness roundtable with Dr. Tel Oren and soon will be joined uh, by another colleague of mine, Dr. Norman Suhu, to uh, join in the dialogue. Dr. Tel Oren, what would you say a listener in our audience could do to begin to um, alkalize their body, but according to science, distinct from the sensationalism around the subject. What would be your recommendations? First of all, I would say let's focus on a healthy lifestyle instead of isolating the issue of pH. Mm -hmm. which is indeed a sensationalizing item. And people become a little overly obsessed 
with uh, measurements and doing things that don't really change or should not really change the patterns of their lifestyle that they should be engaging in regardless. We should mm-hmm. all be eating in a certain way that would improve our health, and the pH is only one measurement of our health status, the pH of our tissues, which, by the way, are very difficult to measure and ascertain. Therefore, there's no point in measuring. Exactly. We should not bother with that. We should just eat a lot more vegetables, a lot more green leafy vegetables, leaves and more leaves and flowers, like broccoli and cauliflower. Those are flowers. And we need to eat a a lot more of the foods that would not contain protein while providing us with calories like some roots and bulbs like uh, sweet potatoes and yams and uh, pumpkin and squash Mm -hmm. and so on. These foods give us a lot of calories from carbohydrates without poisoning us with excessive proteinaceous entities. They don't Mm -hmm. have so much of the nitrogen and the sulfur and therefore the acid that they will help create in our cells will be easier to eliminate as opposed to the sulfuric acid and nitric acid and the phosphoric acid which occur as a result of eating too much protein. Uh-huh. So we should reduce And what you're also intake. referring to is you're, you're implying uh, uh, animal protein. Uh, any, any dense protein. Uh, okay. Even if you eat uh, vegetarian protein, if it's dense, if it occurs in a powder form that uh-huh. claims to have more than 50% of its calories coming from protein, then it is uh, basically ruining your health, even if you think it's going to help you gain muscle in the gym. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe you'll gain muscle, which even that is not necessarily proven. You can gain muscle without bombarding your cells with excessive protein. But people uh, develop this perception, mostly triggered by the industry and the commercial interest. And they start uh, obsessively buying more and more protein, and now they go for the vegan protein. And if you eat a lot of seeds and seed protein, like hemp seed protein and uh, other flax protein and other Mm -hmm. so-called vegan proteins, they're going to cause the same problem uh, or almost as bad of a problem as the protein that you would obtain in in large quantities from animal sources, although the animal sources protein have additional factors that accompany them that perhaps make things even worse. But for the most part, those vegan weightlifters and vegan bodybuilders are sometimes eating in excess of 200 grams of protein per day, ruining their own health to such a staggering extent that I say to them, you might as well have been eating flesh at 120 grams a day or 80 grams a day, which is also superfluous and excessive, instead of taking 200 grams of this so-called healthy protein, which is really not. There's no such thing as non-toxic protein. There's Mm. only less toxic, but protein is always toxic. It is something we must have for survival, we must build some of our building blocks with protein, but the quantities that we actually need are dramatically lesser than what we induce, uh, what we, sorry, what we ingest. And yes. I do recommend that you Google my name uh, in YouTube, 
and look uh, for protein. Just Google my name and protein in YouTube, and you will find a whole uh, lecture of about 50 minutes I gave about the subject of protein, which has been viewed by about 30,000 people by now. Excellent. And it gives people a very good background about the protein dilemma and the yeah. typical protein questions that, uh, that occur in our society. So if we avoid that, naturally the cells will be bathing in a less acidic environment and what function proportion are you suggesting? You said when it comes to the powders, less than 50%, but when it comes to uh, ordinary food, uh, what proportion of a given meal should be uh, protein? Uh, I would say rather than have people measure all the time, which I don't think is healthy. And it's I not going to happen. <laughs> right. Well, you, you'll be surprised what some people do. Um, yeah. when they get obsessed about food, um, I yeah. would say as long as we don't exceed 10% of our calories from protein on average, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're not going to be too toxic with excessive amount of protein. And that's why no powders that claim to be high in protein, no protein bars, no protein products that are selling themselves on the basis of their high protein content should be eaten. Yes. Just eat wholesome, whole, real food. And you will see that many of the foods that naturally have higher amount of proteins, like legumes and nuts and seeds, etc., still don't have too much um, if you dilute them with, uh, with vegetables and fruits. Yeah. But if you eat just them, you would ex- exceed 20% of your calories from protein, and that's already twice as much as you need which has another ill effect on the kidneys. On the kidneys and others, yes. People who do whey protein, whey protein is a horrible thing to do in terms of the kidneys, which reduces our ability to secrete those protons, and if anything, it might alkalize the urine while poisoning the body. Interesting. Because the kidneys would not be effective in releasing those protons and the blood will not be regaining the bicarbonate ions which are designed to buffer the blood, and that's why our blood never changes, and that's another myth. The blood never becomes acid or alkaline. It is always 7.35 to 7.45 on the pH scale, no matter what we do, because it is buffered. We can only change the pH of the urine or the tissues, but mostly the urine, through artificial means, just drink baking soda, and temporarily you alkalize your urine, but it is meaningless in terms of the tissues. Yes. That's a very important point. I'm very glad you're making it. I would like to bring on to the roundtable Dr. Norman Suhu, who has a practice here in New York City as well as Long Island, and uh, he has a background in uh, acupuncture. He is a naturopath and he practices a very interesting um, energetic modality called biosyntony that, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, is based on uh, the work of a gentleman in uh, France. And it's kind of a combination of uh, osteopathy, acupuncture, and Celtic stone wisdom. Now, also, Dr. Suhu does a lot of nutritional counseling 
And so since we're talking about nutrition this moment, I would like to bring you in, uh, Norman, to that conversation. Have you been catching some of what Dr. Tellorin has been sharing with us about alkalinity? Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, just fine. Welcome, okay. Dr. Suhu. Good to have you on the show. Yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah, you bring some very good points in because um, one of our professors, uh, Dr. Edward Ellis, had the same thing to say. The blood is buffered, and all this talk about alkalization is, uh, you know, uh, overemphasized, and it really doesn't change much. And I actually studied also with the descendants, the followers of Dr. Carroll, and uh, Dr. Carroll did not talk about uh, alkaline uh, diet. Uh, he he talks more about um, how people needed to um, stick to the foods that they're able to digest properly. Everyone is able to digest certain foods because of their enzymes. And due to genetic differences, people have uh, certain abilities to digest certain foods and uh, inability to digest others. So he developed this test, and it's now known as the Carroll Food Intolerance Test. So I work with a lot of my uh, patients with this, uh, not not the alkaline, uh, you know, so-called diet. Yes, indeed, indeed. So, Dr. T, it's interesting. You're you're both actually kind of uh, corroborating each other in respect to what is it brings uh, brings forth a big question mark about how important is it to approach our uh, eating habits. From the pH point of view, I hear that you both are saying that there is, of course, bioindividuality, and we're talking about really embracing a certain kind of lifestyle, which, yes, puts a tremendous emphasis on leafy green vegetables, um, sort of like what cows eat, you know, a lot of cud. Are you suggesting that? Yeah, and, and cows definitely measure their pH very regularly. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I see them in the field doing it all the time <laughs> Yes, they, they want to be sure that they're not getting too acidified <laughs> That's right, That's right. <laughs> And they measure their protein too to be under 10% of their calories <laughs> Yes, I mean, they and they have all those nutritionists that give them plentiful advice Yes, exactly, exactly they don't It's need my the, pleasure, the, the, by the, the way it's my pleasure, by the way, to introduce the two of you, uh, Adiel Oren and Dr. Norman Suhu. I think you two would enjoy and appreciate each other very much as well. Thank you. I would like to just add that even though we agree on the de-emphasizing of the issue of pH as, a, as related to these books that sensationalize the topic, yes. um, the topic of pH has been around for 50, 60, 70 years, long before people started capitalizing in it to make a living from selling books on the topic. Mm-hmm. And there are many elements of truth about the fact that when we eat a healthy diet, then the chances of increasing the acidification within ourselves diminish. And there's a lot of truth that when we eat more protein and when we eat too much and metabolize too much energy, that our tissues will become more acidic and that as a result of both behaviors that are common in today's society, indeed, most people do suffer from mild, uh, 
chronic metabolic acidosis in their tissues, in their cells. This is true. Mm -hmm. And I don't mm -hmm. think that either of us are contradicting that truth. All we're saying is that there's no need to emphasize all the time the issue of alkalinity as a, uh, as a focus or as a reason perhaps to buy different products, whether it be Indeed. the dipsticks to, to put in the urine or it would be those very expensive machines to alkalize water or other things of that nature. Yes, I understand. It's a well-made series of points. I'd like to bring up another major acidifying uh, effect in our uh, human metabolism and uh, culture, which oftentimes gets put by the wayside, which is stress. And I'd like to hear you both speak about that. And uh, Norman, if you would, um, when you speak, you could bring that and tie that into the use of biosynteny as a method of uh, reducing stress and reorganizing um, the energies of the body. Dr. T, will you pick up on that uh, notion of the relationship of stress to acidosis and meditation to alkalinity, if you will? Of course. Uh, anytime we are under significant stress, especially the chronic stress that most people today endure, in their daily life, that stress increases our cortisol secretion, and that is a stress hormone which then leads to other stress hormones and stressful neurotransmitters, which are stimulatory in, or in nature, causing our metabolism to increase. And when we eat foods like caffeine, chocolate, and other stimulants that increase our metabolic rate, we dramatically increase the acidification in the cell because whenever we make more energy more rapidly per unit of time the amount of acids created meaning more protons released within mm -hmm. the cells dramatically increase that's a very direct connection between our stress level and the pH of our cells themselves well, what about when we exercise? We increase our metabolic rate right there. And, of course, I know uh, free radicals are generated and uh, stress, you know, there is acidification that occurs. But is it comparable? Yes, it is very comparable. Uh, again, when we look at the cows in the meadows, we don't see them exercise too uh, harshly. They, they, <laughs> most of them had allowed their membership in the gym lapse. <laughs> and therefore, <Okay. laughs> you know, the human uh, yes. body is also designed for motion. Correct. And I think that we motion, all get a yes. certain joy from motion. I agree, and we need right. to move. But yes. vigorous exercise is something that we have invented. Running yeah. for hours and hours without somebody chasing us is very unusual <laughs> in nature. Okay, well, how would you talk about neutralizing the, uh, I mean, if you're going to neutralize the effects of caffeine and chocolate and other stimulants, then you're going to also have to neutralize the effects of, let's say, vigorous exercise. Right, and uh, since in nature vigorous exercise would not have occurred unless we really have a life-threatening situation, we would just be moving along and we would never exceed our muscular capacity for oxygen uh, perfusion. So we will never get into lactic acidosis. Only when we exercise to the point of pain 
we actually have lactic acid uh, buildup in our tissues, and then we have to get rid of that by neutralizing the lactic acid with uh, the assistance of minerals. And that's not a healthy thing, but that's how people become sclerosed or hardened. The soft tissues become less and less flexible, less elastic. That's basically what we feel when we age and we lose our flexibility. That's because we had to neutralize those tough, tough acids that are not the carbonic acid. We cannot easily get rid of those, uh, like the sulfuric acid and others that I mentioned earlier. They require a lot of mineral salts in order to neutralize the acid, and that's how we end up sclerosed or hardened. Understood. Understood. Very interesting. Uh, Dr. Suhu, would you speak to this subject of stress and the approach that you largely use in um, in neutralizing the uh, the ill effects of it? Well, I could. We mentioned earlier about um, how uh, we emphasize a diet of most vegetables, like a cow, and it made me think too that if you ever observe a cow uh, and how they're eating uh, from the meadow you'll notice that there are certain areas that they avoid. There will be uh, areas that are fully mown, uh, almost bare patches of grass, and then you'll see areas that are are very tall. They just avoid these particular areas of grass. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, and these areas, when you study them, are actually called um, geopathic stress zones. Yes. These are are areas where the... uh, an underground geological formation creates a zone of of um, positive electrons, and it causes the plants to grow in a, a way that... positive ions. A positive ions. Yes, yeah. exactly. And it causes these, the, these grass to grow in a way that the cows know that they should avoid. They should not be eating. Mm-hmm. Very and interesting. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. And uh, this this is actually the basis of a, of a therapy that I use called biosymphony, which is to understand how uh, we are connected with uh, the energies of the earth and of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. Um, the principles of the ancient uh, Celtic people were that, and all actually all the... Uh, the natural systems of healing is that we need to be uh, connected with nature and to be synchronized with the rhythms of nature and of life and this will allow all our biorhythms to function properly and therefore also help with stress and the management of stress and the reduction of stress and the use of uh, in the Celtic system they used what is called um, uh, quartz-type rocks. They would place them over these geopathic stress zones. And we know that uh, rocks that contain large amounts of silica have a piezoelectric effect. They generate lots of electrons. And mm-hmm. these electrons can then be used to neutralize the positive ion zones created by geopathic stress. And uh, through the genius of uh, Pierre Nicolas in uh, France, 
he discovered certain properties of clay and ceramic and created the system called biosyntony. This is uh, the use of uh, ceramics that contain a, a high amount of silica. And these uh, ceramics generate uh, electrons, negative ions, uh, to help draw energy back into the body and to open up energetic pathways so that um, the the person's uh, root chakra and crown chakra can receive information from the cosmos and earth. This will then help regulate your adrenal glands because we know that the root chakra is connected to the adrenal system mm -hmm. and the uh, crown chakra is connected to the pituitary and the pineal glands. So through these uh, uh, treatments using biosyntony, we can help uh, regulate the effects of stress and mitigate the effects of stress on the body. Interesting. Interesting. Dr. T, are you aware of the practice of biosyntony? I heard about it, but I never really got uh, in, too involved with it. So I cannot... Yes. Uh, make specific comments. Uh, I usually like to see more, um, like they say, specific scientific evidence for things. And uh, though I am very well aware and I've read a lot of uh, work about the, the various aspects of uh, um, geopathic fields and uh, very, you know, Schumann fields and waves, and I've read about yeah. a lot of these issues and some of them I know are scientifically founded in, in good you know, good science, good uh, understanding of the mechanisms. I tend to shy away from uh, getting too involved with things that, even though we know some of the science that surrounds various issues, especially with electrons um, and movement and flow of electrons, uh, I don't know that we humans have yet learned that in sufficient depth to know how to command it, how to master it, or how to use it with certainty. And that's why I like to see some kind of rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies showing um, two groups of people that suffer from similar conditions of stress, for example, and measuring perhaps their stress hormones that come from their adrenals or the neurotransmitters, or we can measure the metabolites in the urine, like homovanillic acid or vanillamendelic acid, which come in the urine, uh, representing these neurotransmitters associated with stress. And once you measure that, uh, you can compare those two groups. One would be getting that specific therapy, and one would not. And if that's the only variable, you could easily prove scientifically that this is a valid reproducible treatment. That's what I would like to do to actually prove the validity of any new um, therapy that is based on energetics or on frequencies or mm -hmm. other things that are not as easily uh, measured in a scientific way. Yes, yes. I understand the the desire for that. Yes, Norman. Um, uh, the inventor uh, Pierre had a chance to work with some uh, Russian scientists 
over uh, the summer to uh, do some uh, testing of these ceramics. And the, the Russians have a, a special uh, technology uh, that measures uh, these energy particles called microleptons. And these particles um, have been measured to help uh, Russian scientists locate where to drill for oil. They uh, measure uh, on the surface if there's an area that accumulates microleptons. They know that um, there is a, a good chance of oil, and it helps them do that. Uh, to find uh, where to, to drill uh, with success. And uh, this type of imaging technology was used to uh, detect what was what kind of phenomenon was going on with uh, the biosynteny ceramics. And they discovered that when you image the, uh, the ceramics using their uh, imaging techniques, uh, the, there is absolutely a... Um, a field of microleptons that gather around the ceramics. Um, so that has been shown to be uh, uh, one of the effects, uh, that there is something happen and, uh, happening energetically. Uh, in addition, the, um, yeah, in addition, the Russian uh, scientists, this team he worked with, uh, they, they have a very sophisticated type of heart rate variability monitoring, and they, they have um, a way of determining through the heart, measuring the heart rate variability, um, how, uh, how well the uh, autonomic nervous system is functioning um, according to your biological age, uh, according to your functional age, and so on. And mm -hmm. um, this was a very early study. They, 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 they tested a, a few uh, men with uh, a brief treatment with biosynthony. And they were able to demonstrate that there was a, a significant functional change in the heart rate variability, uh, demonstrating that the uh, autonomic nervous system was able to be uh, was able to uh, relax and become normalized, less uh, on the sympathetic overdrive, and more of a balanced autonomic nervous system functioning. Uh, I, I I also agree that need to be blood tests and urine tests to measure the biological markers relating to stress. But unfortunately, that has not been done yet with yeah. this technology. <clears throat> Those I kinds of very happy to are generally expensive, and there isn't a whole lot of uh, any kind of federal funding anywhere for right. it. But it's fairly, it's fairly inexpensive to do. I just came back from Nepal, and I single-handedly did a scientific study that cost me six hundred dollars you can uh, really? if you if you really want to do a study you don't need more than twenty people uh, one you know ten ten people per group and that could be a very good pilot study with significant statistical validity uh, simply by doing uh, a test that does not cost more than two hundred dollars per person it's not that difficult to do mm -hmm. these type of tests and you know you don't always have to publish them if they're not publishable but it's a good idea to publish them if you can and uh, I would like to see any study that is uh, supportive of our ability to master the fact that something is there yeah we know something is there anything has a electronic potential anything transmits or uh, elimin or releases or accept electrons and we can prove that the question is how do we know how we control it 
in terms of applicability to the human body. How do we know for a fact that we're only doing good and not doing something harmful? This is what I would like to, to see. And any study that were done so far, I would be more than happy to see where they were published and what were the findings and how they randomized the, the population and you know what conclusion that they arrived uh, and so forth. I think that's the typical process that we all want to go through as scientists is through observation and honest assessment of, of the findings. Yes, indeed. There's also an indigenous wisdom, it should be said, that while we are, as humans, naturally scientific, I believe that's a real function of our uh, one of our brains, uh, you know, our, our left hemisphere largely, but not only. Uh, we also have other levels of noting clinical symptoms and their alleviation, brightness of the eyes. In Chinese medicine, as you both know, there's a whole means of different ways of evaluating uh, the health and balance of a client. And these ways, I feel, have validity in and of themselves, and they are to be understood within their own cultural context. Science, um, as we've developed it, is in a sense the new kid on the block. And while it has tremendous validity, and I feel that we need it in many respects, there are other measure, measurable uh, variables that I think also have validity as well. I completely agree um, that uh, any time you have a measurable variable, uh, regardless of uh, whether it comes from Chinese or Ayurvedic or other sources that are ancient, mm -hmm. as soon as you can measure them, or as soon as you can, uh, let's say, uh, annotate uh, their characteristics, you are yes. already operating within the realm of science. Yes. You can measure the brightness of the eyes, uh, and you can actually ref make references to it uh, right. in response to therapy. So even that is still observable science. Yes, indeed. I agree. I agree with that. I fear that we are just about, I know you have a uh, a class coming up, Dr. T. And, yes, um, I'm giving a I, lecture right now. <laughs> yeah. I well, Maybe even on the air. <laughs> I very much appreciate your tremendous contribution to our roundtable. Norman, if you could stay on for another couple of moments, that would be great. And uh, Dr. Tell Oren, what is the website where people can go and learn more about your work? Uh, at this moment, it's uh, ecopolitan.com, E-C-O, P-O-L-I-T-A-N, as in Ecological Metropolitan. Yes. Uh, yeah. It is under significant remodeling and change. So uh, people who have to bear Aren't with we that. all. <laughs> yes, exactly. We all are, Dr. T. <laughs> That's right. Very good, but they can go there for now and at least get acquainted with you and, um, and have a way of reaching you. I appreciate uh, your time, and uh, it was nice to meet you, Norman, and thank you for uh, sharing, and have a wonderful evening. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank, thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. Very good. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Tel Oren from originally Jerusalem, Israel, and who uh, works in uh, over a dozen clinics there and uh, other clinics across the United States and Europe.
He just came back from Nepal where he was, uh, as we learned, uh, doing some testing there and uh, spending time with children, as I understand. And now we have a few more minutes with Dr. Norman Zuhu, so I would like you to be able to complete your thought process there, Norman, regarding uh, the use of biosyntony, because I know personally that uh, it's had quite an effect on me, and I, I, I haven't taken out my ruler to measure it. But I know that at moments I have been in physical distress and pain, and I noticed um, when you work specifically in a given area, it was alleviated. And it was gone. And, you know, I know from that point of view, you could say through observation, i.e. scientifically, of its efficacy. And could you just say another word or two about that? Well, the, the biosynthony system, uh, when you look at it, it can seem very complicated. There's many uh, disc treatments available and so on. But then again... It also is quite simple because um, the biosynthony treatments really uh, ultimately help release restrictions in the diaphragm, the breathing muscle. Uh -huh. Through my work and also the understanding of an osteopathy, uh, the diaphragm muscle is extremely important. Yes. Uh, it's actually the interface the physical interface between the mental, emotional uh, functions and the physical body. And what I have discovered uh, through my, my work with biosynthony is that if a person has a restriction in their diaphragm, which can be measured uh, through osteopathic uh, evaluative methods, you know, with your hands, you notice is that the person will have a noticeable change in their mental emotional function. They might be anxious, they might be sad, they might be depressed, uh, they may be experiencing mood swings, um, they might feel stressed. Likewise, when someone is under the gun, they're under lots of stress, and I see lots of these people, um, very often and when I interview them, they tell me, when I'm in the office, I very often notice that I'm not breathing. I'm just holding my breath. So yeah. when, you have, when you're under a, a state of stress, the diaphragm also becomes dysfunctional. So one of the things I notice with biosynthony, there are treatments, for example, for the brain, for the heart, another one for the lung, and so on. But each of them has built into them a vibration that helps release the diaphragm. Mm-hmm. And this will help you with stress. Yep. And your management of stress. And it will then trigger the cascade of feel-good hormones and so on that are anti-stress. Really amazing. Yeah. Truly. So that's an interesting bridge that it's the opening up of the diaphragm which helps to relieve stress, but also acts as a uh, as an interface between uh, the body and you could say the ethers, if you will, for healing. It, precisely, 
Yeah. And when you study uh, osteopathy, you know, you read a lot of their theories and research, they often place heavy emphasis on something called the first breath. Yeah. The first breath, the first breath is the first breath you take when the fetus comes out and is born. That they place so much emphasis on the first breath and if there was any birth trauma which would affect the ease at which the first breath was taken. Uh, osteopathic research also shows that people who had birth trauma, such as maybe they were breached or they were delivered yeah. with forceps or just some type of trauma that that, that uh, inhibited a full, deep, easy first breath, they discovered that many people who had experiences later on in life had a higher incidence of alcoholism, drug addiction, and even suicide. So that also confirms what I am seeing in my practice. Yes. Relaxation and re restrictions that are freed in the diaphragm enhance your mental emotional state. Mm-hmm. That is fabulous. What I would like to do, Norman, is pick up with you on this subject soon and fill in the pieces that we didn't get to cover today because I have another guest on uh, with a uh, very different subject matter that we're about to launch into. But would you give your website for our, for our listeners? Yes, thank you. Um, people can contact me through drsuhu.com, D-R-S-U-H-U.com. Okay, wonderful. And is there a phone number that you give out that you would like or just through your website? Uh, the best way to reach me is uh, through the emailing through the website, but you can also reach me in my office at 212-691-8281. Excellent, excellent. Dr. Suhu, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. And it was a pleasure to have you on A Better World TV quite some months ago. And uh, we'll have you on again to continue this rich conversation. Yes, thank you, Mitchell. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. We'll speak soon. Good night. Wow. So that rounds up our uh, roundtable on health and wellness here on A Better World Radio. And... Uh, Wow, I hope you got a lot out of that. It was a real learning experience for me as well between Dr. Tel Oren from Israel and Dr. Norman Suhu here from New York City. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. And now we are about to enter a whole other sphere, you could say, a whole other world, talking about actually ancient civilizations. We will be speaking now momentarily with Michael Tellinger, who is a speaker at the upcoming Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference in Hilversum, just outside of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, between November 9th and 11th. And uh, he is one of actually many interesting speakers there. And I asked him because his resume just was so outstanding to be a guest on A Better World. He is known as a scientist, as an author, as an explorer, and has become what is considered a real-life Indiana Jones, who has made some uh, real groundbreaking discoveries regarding um, 
ancient civilizations at the southern tip of Africa, which most people don't even know ever existed, but has brought back to our current civilization some artifacts. And I'm as interested as all of you to find out what those are and to pick Michael's brain about what it is he's been up to in this regard with the implications for our lives currently, because God knows we need as much help as we can get. Michael, I hear you on the line. Good to have you. Hello, Mitchell. Nice to hear your voice. Excellent. And yours, and yours. I'm sorry that it's so late in South Africa. I really appreciate your uh, staying up late to uh, to be on our show today. It's a pleasure. It's uh, always nice to talk to somebody for the first time. You know, I, I did uh, this morning, uh, my morning, uh, I did a... a uh, a very long interview with George Nuri on Coast to Coast, and those are always these oh. marathon runs. And, uh, yeah. and now I've got you at the end, at the other at other end of the day. <laughs> yes, a perfect sandwich, as it were, right? Yeah. Indeed, <laughs> and truly coast to coast because he's on the west coast and I'm on the east coast. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, indeed, indeed. Well. Michael, your your background is quite far ranging, but I'm I'm very interested, as I believe George was, in knowing more about what is this research that you have done, and what is it that you've uncovered. Well, you know, I've been um, fascinated with origins of humankind, uh, of an alternative um, theory for all my life, like many people. Yeah. Asking questions about who we are as a species, where do we come from, why are we here, and not being satisfied with the answers that I got at school and at university, and um, finding out that there's a, a whole huge body of scientific evidence that never sees the mainstream media that is so well supported uh, globally and um, and regarded by many as alternative science and alternative knowledge and so forth, while mm-hmm. it actually, the moment you enter it, you realize that that's actually the mainstream body of knowledge and information that is consciously and, and maliciously ignored by those that seem to want to control the rest of humanity. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's a, it's a very deliberate ignoring and, if not, manipulation of information. What is it that you feel that has... Uh, of your particular discoveries in the southern tip of Africa that has been covered up, or do you feel that you have come across some artifacts that were just never even noted before in either archaeology or by anthropologists? Well, actually, the, the, my, discovering my art, the artifacts and the vanished civilizations of, of southern Africa, as I now call them, um, is a consequence of of me going and researching, you know, the the, the mysterious origins of our um, of our creation and our sudden appearance on planet Earth. When did yes. Homo sapiens suddenly pop out of this miraculous vacuum and and begin this journey on on the route that find and finds us here today? And yes. um, and I started looking at the the work of of specifically Zachariah Sitchin among many others. But yeah. it was really Zechariah Sitchin's work because of his interpretations of the Sumerian texts and mm-hmm. uh, and his very very alternative um, or his very um, vast 
um, body of work that he's put throughout his entire life into translating Sumerian tablets and giving us his interpretation, interpretation of what they mean. Yeah. Um, and and then going to, to to find the actual physical evidence for pretty much everything that Zechariah Sitchin has done. And I think that's really where my work becomes very relevant is presenting the physical evidence of for Sitchin's work so that there can be no more doubt about vanished civilizations of extraterrestrials, an advanced uh, group of beings that arrived on planet Earth mm-hmm. in search of gold, specifically gold, and uh, and their activities in southern Africa, which was referred to as the Abzu in the Sumerian tablets. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is pretty much what I deal with. Um, yes, interesting. So, so Zachariah Sitchin's work, and I, I kind of smelled it in reviewing your website, I kind of began to get that feeling that Sitchin was behind you, and I think that's very rich. Uh, and yet there was his, his um, inferences and interpretations are largely based on textual information. And you took the next logical and actually very important grounding step of identifying actual physical evidence, as you say. So what? Yeah. maybe you should actually first, if you wouldn't mind, Michael, lay out uh, Zachariah Sitchin's um, premise for those people in the audience who may not be familiar with it, and then follow through with the physical evidence that you brought forward that helps to corroborate it. Right. <clears throat> well, for for the people that know the, the information that comes from the Sumerian tablets, uh, it's quite staggering. Pretty much everything we know um, about the Bible, all the great stories in the Bible, from from the creation of, of the universe and the heavens and the earth, and uh, Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the, the, the story of Noah and the flood, the, the Garden of Eden, the destruction yeah. of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Tower of Babel, all the great stories uh, in the Bible and beyond come to us from the Sumerian tablets that predate the Bible by many thousands of years. Yes. And, and, and now not only um, edited versions when they finally make their way into the Bible, um, but uh, often um, what seem to be very, very badly edited versions, like, for example, the creation of Eve from Adam's rib is reduced to um, two lines in the Bible, while the Sumerian tablets have extensive information on that event, of mm-hmm. how Eve was actually fashioned as a partner for Adamu, who needed to procreate um, but so Sitchin takes the the information in the Sumerian tablets and that refers to the gods and and specifically to the Elohim and the Anunnaki who are are the same group of beings and this was actually strangely enough believe it or not this was confirmed in a very strange phone call into the George Nuri show that I did this morning about mm-hmm. uh, you know ten hours ago. What do you mean? What are you referring to? <clears throat> I'm referring to. Um, the fact that um, a, a guy actually called in to the radio show claiming mm-hmm. that he was uh, abducted um, while fully conscious 12 years ago by a group of beings um, 
and uh, who called themselves the Anunnaki. And, uh, and they told him a lot about themselves and what they were doing, how they were responsible for the genetic cloning of the human race. And mm-hmm. the reason they did it, it was all about gold and blah, blah, blah. And, um, mm-hmm. and at the, time, the, the curious thing was at the time, he knew nothing about the Anunnaki. He knew nothing about the work of Zachariah Sitchin or my work. Uh-huh. Really? He knew nothing about, about the gold and the slave species and all that. Uh-huh. And uh, only 12 years, uh, only after that, when he came back uh, from his uh, abduction, which, which he says he was fully conscious throughout the whole thing. There was no moments of, you know, amnesia or anything like that. And how and then, long did uh, that abduction last? It's a, that I, I can't actually tell you right now, but it was several hours. Uh, it was, yes. it, it, uh, he made, he's made contact with me since, and so we yes. can have more discussion on this. So yes. I'm really looking to tomorrow so I can have a long chat with him on Skype. Sure, but, sure. Uh, just come back to the to the reason. So Zachariah Sitchin's um, work is extensive, and your listeners that don't know that, I suggest they go check it out. But if yes, they want an abridged version, if they want a version that is really you know cuts to the chase, pulls all his work together. Get get a copy of my book, which is Slave Species of the Gods, uh, which mm-hmm. has just been released um, in the USA and the UK by uh, Inner Traditions Bear and Co in Vermont. Yes. And uh, so it's now widely available in all the major bookshops uh, in the yes. USA. And I actually and, um, think that we have it available on Amazon through our website, in fact, to make yeah. it easy and, for and people. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that, ahead. Mitchell, is probably a, a much easier version to read because Sitchin's work is, I think he's written 16 books. So yes, it's going to take you uh, probably a few years to get through it because it's quite rich yes. and his writings are very technical at times, and a lot of people struggle with it. So uh, at the time that I wrote Slave Species of the Gods, I felt compelled to take all that work and make it an easy read and pull it all together, but add to it. Excellent, excellent. Because after all, he was a biblical scholar, and that formed the basis of his initial understanding and interest in that um, time period, which then led him, of course, to the Sumerian texts later on. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Well, and, uh, then I thank you for that uh, recommendation of your book there. That's very good, Michael. Yeah. Um, what What you'll find is that I, I bring in things like, you know, uh, f- physiology, our physical humanness, uh, from, from the basic anatomy to human nature to genetics, DNA, um, uh, I bring in all the religions of the, the major 12 religions of the world, their origins and the crossover path where they all come from. And you find when you trace all the major religions back, they all have the same points of origin and points of departure. And at every point of departure, there is shortly after humanity is created, there is this interference by these these angelic beings or deities, the people from the sky, and so forth. And it is consistent with all ancient cultures and civilizations. They all talk about our human origins that come from the stars, but unfortunately yes. that knowledge has been eaten out of us by the Eurocentric uh, conquerors that pretty much conquered the, the free world about 500 years ago from the late 1400s. When they started yes. colonizing the, the, the Americas and the Af- Africa and Asia, 
the first thing they did is they started beating the indigenous knowledge out of the, the indigenous knowledge keepers and replacing it with Eurocentric belief systems very, very yes. cleverly. Um, so, unfortunately, you've got to start digging a little deeper these days to find these indigenous knowledge um, uh, keepers in many instances and then to get uh, to overcome if you're very, you know, very much guided by or influenced by Western Eurocentric education systems, uh, we yes. have to overcome a lot of the stigma that is associated with, with our own personal belief systems that's really been beaten into us and yes. forced into us through 12 years of, of primary school education, which is nothing more than, than indoctrination and, 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 and brainwashing. Indeed, it, so much of it is a program that we are uh, coerced into accepting yeah. as reality. So our right. entire perceptual apparatus gets, you could say, narrowed down to a very particular kind of interpretation of, of nature and reality. So the yeah, point is well and made. Look, I can speak on that with, with quite some experience at this stage because um, you know, life is a strange journey that we take, isn't it? Because yeah. my, my original research and obsession with origins of humankind and and wanting to put together a, a cohesive storyline and therefore writing books about it um, yeah. led me through through slave species of, of the gods and then and the discovery of the ancient stone structures here in southern Africa being being exposed to what are then called Adam's calendar, this ancient calendar site that is that are date back to two hundred and eighty thousand years ago and the actual origins and the creation of the human race. And mm -hmm. then exposing the the vast vanished civilizations with more than ten million stone structures that have been left behind, scattered throughout southern Africa, of of mysterious origins that are now linked to the Anunnaki or the Elohim, the biblical Elohim the gods of the ancient times who were and how did you how did you link those to those uh to the Anunnaki? Well I'm gonna to come to that in, in one second. Uh, just oh, yeah, before sure, I please I'll go, yeah. go back to that, uh, Mitchell, I just wanna yes. lead you to throughout all that research uh led me to the conclusion that, that something is wrong with our socio economic economic structure as a whole, as a species. Because yes. that the strange beast that that this knowledge and information becomes, it forces you to realize that that the life we live today is severely manipulated and distorted, and that distortion started probably between six and twelve thousand years ago, uh, mm -hmm. which in in normal archaeological and historical circles is a huge period of time, but in the in the sense that I work in hundreds of thousands of years, it's actually not that long. Um, and I realize that about 6,000 years ago, when we start finding the, the first translations of the Sumerian tablets, um, mm -hmm. we start seeing the, the, the very harsh interference by the so-called gods or advanced deities and beings in, in human uh, lives and human um, culture. And it is also at that point that you see money suddenly appearing in uh, human history. And mm. when you trace back, you realize that this thing called money was not uh, an uh, evolutionary 
process in human history. But money was very specifically and maliciously introduced as a tool of control over the human race. And that has led mm. me to to taking action against the banks <clears throat> and the financial institutions, as you may or that may not you're know. doing currently in South Africa, correct? Yeah. That's right. And and, right. and so I, when I say, uh, you know, the, the starting with the origins of humankind and and going up against the legal systems, which are no more than absolute control systems for the benefit mm -hmm. of corporations and governments that are controlled by the money makers and these what still seem to be the same advanced beings of the Anunnaki who are playing a very decisive role in human events is quite a spectacular leap from one end to the other, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I, the, the series, I mean, I'm going to frame it as a series of um, very interesting interpretations. You know, as I was reading material on your website, Michael, and I listened also to Foster Gamble's comments on your website, and I know Foster, and he's he's been on our show, and I have recommended the film Thrive to many thousands of people. Uh, yeah. I, of course, saw parallels in what's going on in South Africa to what's going on right here on Wall Street, down the block from us right this moment. Uh, so I see that we know that there's a huge amount of perversion of human character and human culture that has been taking place. It's really interesting to hear what you have to say about what you feel are the origins of money-making and money uh, tra transactions. And uh, it may be true. I, I, I don't have a basis one way or the other to comment on it, but it's certainly an interesting um, thread, no question about it. I'd like to go back uh, to looking at the way you um, correlate the relationship between the physical evidence that you found, and I'd like to know more about that, and the work of Sitchin and the Anunnaki and the idea of a slave culture. Right. Well, the, you know, the human history cannot be separated from our obsession of gold. Uh, it's just not possible. And I challenge any mm -hmm. of your listeners to try and do that. Every yeah. ancient culture is directly and inextricably linked to gold, gold mining and the, the, the people's obsession with gold. And that yeah. obsession with gold, um, you'll find when you start scratching around, is not man-made. That obsession was actually imposed on us by the gods, these Anunnaki beings <clears throat> that yeah. came to Earth according to Sitchin's calculations and his translations of the Sumerian text, uh, they came to Earth, they arrived here around 430,000 years ago, or more or less, and mm -hmm. uh, in search of gold. And they found gold in spectacular amounts. Um, after the first you know, uh, number of attempts trying to find it um, in the waters, in the ocean, and uh, in, in the northern hemisphere, around the Mesopotamian area, and uh, then they went and through the deity Enki, um, who was one of the two brothers, um, Enlil and Enki. Um, uh, in Gilgamesh. Enki, uh, yeah, the Epic of Gilgamesh is part of it, absolutely. Um, mm -hmm. But Enki was, uh, went out looking for, um, for gold uh, in a much more concentrated form, and he found it 
according to the Sumerian texts, in a place called the Abzu. And um, so my my argument was, and my logic says that, well, if we can find this place called the Abzu, where all the gold mines were that Enki set up, and, and the, the Sitchin's work tells us in spectacular fashion that Enki went, when he found this Abzu, went and uh, set up a huge gold mining operation that was mm-hmm. larger than any other gold mining operation in the rest of the world to date. And so mm. if we can find this vast gold mining operation, then biological, um, you know, backtracking, um, we can we can argue that we have found what Enki called the Abzu and um, deal with it from that perspective. Well, well, that's exactly well one thing, Michael, we'll be rich. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, that's what but we is, think. Yeah, right. That's but is Enki think, yeah. is Enki an Anunnaki? Is he himself an extraplanetary um, astronaut, so to speak? Oh yeah, no, he he's the guy. He he's the guy that actually he's was the sent. guy. Yeah, he, okay. he's the guy that was sent to Earth to find the gold, and he yes. found it. And once he and found it, and who is Enkidu from that point of view? What was Enkidu then? Who now, was Enkidu is, is another as another individual, um, which which confuses a, a lot of uh, a lot of individuals. Uh, Enkidu, I think you're referring to a companion to to Gilgamesh, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, don't confuse Enkidu with uh, with Enki. Um, okay. Uh, but just for the sake of, of clarity of, of your listeners now, if we can just stick to Enki and the gold mining, because if, sure. if somebody is new, somebody is new to this, it, you know, it's just going to cause confusion. Absolutely, but no, I'm glad that you made the distinction and the contrast. That will be helpful later on. So yeah, exactly. that's good. Uh, yeah, that's good. And so Enki was charged with going down to Earth or to over to Earth and um, finding or founding a mining operation because the extraplanetary beings wanted this precious yellow gold. It's so interesting, Michael, because gold from an actual functional point of view is not nearly as useful as silver or as copper, but everybody has an obsession with gold. Yeah, and and, uh, and you're quite right. And just to illustrate how we received our obsession as the human race from yes. the gods or the Elohim, because as of today, uh, I am now absolutely very um, comfortable with the fact that the Anunnaki and the Elohim were the same group of beings. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and I'm saying this because I've, I've known this, and I've, I've evidence here as well. Adam's calendar is a very, very good uh, piece of evidence to illustrate that um, the Anunnaki and the Elohim were the same group of beings, uh, and Elohim being plural, obviously, for the gods. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, it is incorrectly incorrectly translated in the recent versions of the Bible, in whatever language you look at, where it says, you know, the Elohim is a singular god, where that I is not know. the case. I have noted that so many times, and I say to people, you don't understand Hebrew because it's, plural it's not a monolithic uh god you know yeah, yeah. Uh, please so, go on so, i appreciate that um um what 
just to, let me just qualify that because Adam's calendar, and we're going to talk more about Adam's calendar or Enki's calendar. Enki constructed this calendar site at the southern tip of, of Africa in the Abzu on the edge of a cliff. And that's one of the major discoveries that we've made and that I've made and linked to the Anunnaki and specifically Enki, the gold mining empire. But the, the, the Adam's calendar was, was is situated along the 31 degrees east longitudinal line which is in line uh, with Great Zimbabwe further north, which is his, his sort of headquarters in the Abzu, the gold mining operation, and the, the Great Pyramid of Giza in, in Egypt. So those three major ancient um, uh, sites are, are aligned along the 31 degrees east longitudinal line. Well, the numeric value for 31, when you start adding it up, uh, add up to El or Elohim, which tells yeah. us that that this is directly linked to not only the Anunnaki, but the Anunnaki are linked then to the Elohim. And mm. that's what this guy morning. Out of the blue, he blurted out to, that, that while he was um, abducted by these, these Anunnaki beings, they told him that they're known as El, <laughs> or Elohim. Oh, really? And, and so that he knew nothing about the Anunnaki, but he just recalls what he was told. And, and this is all beautiful corroborative uh, material. Yes. No, I hear that. I, it's fascinating that here you are in your journey, and it happens to be that today there has been such a major corroboration from someone who actually knows nothing formally about the subject of Zechariah Sitchin's work or yours, filled mm-hmm. in the missing the missing gaps, if you will. Yeah. So so let's get back to the gold, right? Um, yeah. In Genesis, um, in Genesis 2, when Adam is still alone on earth, where Eve had not yet been fashioned from his rib, it's not Adam that shows his obsession for gold. I mean, how would he know anything about gold? Yeah. yeah. Here, he's alone on planet earth. He has no knowledge of metallurgy or alchemy or anything. And uh, and God appears to him, or Elohim appeared to him, and say, "Hey, Adam, um, we've we've got some information for you about a place called Havilah, uh, where the land is good, the water is good, and by the way, buddy, there's gold." <laughs> so it is God that introduces the subject of gold to Adam. Now yeah. that is clearly not what we are, what we think or what we believe. Yeah. So. And that's when when Eve is not even yet around, okay? So what I found is through my research is that when humanity was cloned um, from existing creatures on planet Earth, possibly Homo erectus and possibly some other more advanced, consciously and spiritually advanced beings that were present on planet Earth at that stage that were then decimated by the Anunnaki because Mm -hmm. it is becoming more and more clear that the Anunnaki were not a nice group of beings. They were quite malicious and and mm-hmm. um, and quite warring in many ways as well. Mm-hmm. They, they, they probably caused a lot more chaos and conflict and hardship on planet Earth on the other beings that were here already and quite possibly destroyed many of them mm-hmm. or, or other species. In any, in any case, they used the genetic code of their own DNA and blended it, just you know, genetically modified, just like we have genetically modified food. You know, we can add mm-hmm. genes and swaps and any way we want. Yeah. And we cross when they when they genetically modify food, they don't always put genes from 
other food sources into the DNA of the food. They use genes from non-edible things into the DNA, and that is yes. quite disturbing. Yeah, um, indeed. So w w people are still naive about this, and you know we can clone bloody anything. You know, just yes. imagine the work possibilities, and and they can do that. They can splice yes. DNA and pretty much code anything they want. True enough. And so this is exactly, and what I find fascinating is that the, the term that the Sumerian tablets and the Anunnaki use for the DNA is far more descriptive than what we have. You know. DNA. What on earth does that mean? Dioxyribonucleic sure. acid. What is that? Right. <laughs> what kind it's of a so name long, is that? It's so long a word that nobody even endeavors to pronounce it. Exactly. Well, yeah. the Sumerian tablets refer to it, as far as I know, far more appropriately when they call it the entwined essence of our being. Oh. Now, when <laughs> you read that, you go, hold yeah. on, this is it's a lot of information and truth in that one statement alone. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and how they describe in great detail how they had to unravel the entangled essence of our being, of the creature yeah. and their own essence, and splice together fragments of the essence to create a new creature that would be in, uh, capable of understanding their instructions and follow their orders in order to carry out the gold mining operations. Now, when you read this kind of information in the Sumerian tablets, you go, hold on, buddy. There's a lot more yeah. to this than somebody's wild, you know, imagination. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, and then when, when I was exposed in 2007 to the mysterious stone, circular stone structures that are scattered throughout Southern Africa... I somehow instinctively knew that these were directly connected to the Anunnaki and their operations on planet Earth and specifically to the gold mining operations in Southern Africa. Because mm -hmm. any of your listeners will be aware of the fact that most of the gold and the platinum in the world and the diamonds in the world have all come out of Southern Africa. Sure. In fact, my research re more recently suggests that much more of the gold and the platinum and other minerals and the diamonds has come out of Southern Africa than most people dare to imagine. Because mm -hmm. we, only, we only use a fraction. We only get told a fraction of the truth and the information about the gold mining operations and what happens to the gold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No doubt. No the, doubt. How did you... How did you, I, I don't want to interrupt the flow, but, and, and you don't have to answer this this moment, but I would like to know how, Michael, you identified Abzu. Well, this is it, because uh, it's clearly stated that Abzu is where the gold came from. And then you start yes. following, um, following our history in Southern Africa um, from the more recent history, the, the, the gold rush in the middle 1800s in South Africa, and that led mm -hmm. to the to the major major gold mining explorations, um, starting in the early 1900s, then and and going to today, where more gold mines open virtually on a monthly basis. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, wow. And uh, and going back in time to um, the the kingdom of Monomotapa, the great African kingdom of the Golden Kings, that oh. was. That you know that that covered most of Southern Africa, one of the most powerful African kingdoms in the last two thousand years. 
that very few people are aware of. And this African kingdom of Monomotapa was attacked by many ancient cultures. They, many attempts were made to overthrow this, this kingdom of Monomotapa and had failed failed over and over again. So clearly they were a very powerful kingdom that could not be toppled by the great powers from the north, you know, from yeah. the Phoenicians to the Romans to the Egyptians to the, um, <clears throat> to the Chinese. Uh, there's evidence of Chinese beer. To, to really? the Makumati people. The Makumati people are one of the most interesting groups of individuals that, that had a huge influence in Southern African history in the last two to three thousand years, and nobody knows about this. And, um, and what Makumati, kind of evidence of their existence have you found? Well, Makumati is phenomenal evidence. There we have to credit uh, Dr. Cyril Hromnik, who's a, a, a doctor in, in uh, history, and his speciality is, is uh, Sanskrit history and Hindu history, and he mm -hmm. traces many Hindu traditions uh, and activities to the Makumati people who were Dravidian, who was a sect of southern Indian Dravidian gold miners and gold merchants that he traces to southern Africa and their vast influence over the last 1,000 to 2,000 to possibly as far back as 3,000 years ago when these Hindu Dravidians, also known as the Makumati people, were mining gold and dealing with gold in southern Africa and exporting it back to the east. We um, are speaking with Michael Tellinger calling in to us in New York City from South Africa. Michael is known as an author, a scientist, and a researcher par excellence, and he is speaking with us about his very powerful research into ancient civilizations, those that have not been recognized or acknowledged, but he has found a, num a number of levels of uh, corroboration proving their existence, both textual as well as physical evidence, and following texts uh, and research of others, including and especially Zachariah Sitchin. So this is very interesting. You're listening to Mitchell J. Rabin on A Better World. And also note a little plug for the Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference. Michael Tellinger will be one of the speakers there coming up in uh, Hilversum, Netherlands, November 9th through 11th, just outside of Amsterdam. If you are listening and you are interested in what you're hearing now and you're interested in breakthrough technologies that can help to reshape our planet, uh, please come and join us there at the Breakthrough Energy Movement Conference. It will be well worth your while. I'll be the MC and uh, panel moderator, so I, I'm sure those who attend are going to be getting a very interesting education and a very interesting network. So, Michael, please continue on. Well, I'm glad you brought the, the Breakthrough Energy Movement in, in Hilversum up because uh, the, the, I'll be talking there about the advanced technology of the Anunnaki left behind yeah. that I have scientific evidence and proof for, so it's not just you know a warm, fuzzy feeling in my stomach. Yes. <laughs> I'll, show you, I'll show you exactly how, how advanced these Anunnaki beings were in their quest for gold and the gold mining evidence that they've left behind. 
in their millions in southern Africa. So it's not just a few scattered fragments. We talk about millions of stone structures and energy devices that they used in their mining and gold mining operation. And uh, I'll be linking that to, to our ability to heal, to cure um, in, in, in medicine and, and our yeah. knowledge of anatomy and physiology and, and how that is used for curing and healing and also for, for our quest for free energy because that's what Indeed. these guys did. They actually left behind millions of examples in the stone ruins that are still free energy generating devices. Every split second of the day, they're giving us huge amounts of energy. But now I've jumped right to, to a whole other conclusion. So let's go back a little bit and, sure. uh, and, and continue, continue the storyline with, which, which leads us to those conclusions, uh, which took me about four years to figure out of, of intensive research. Yeah. Um, and so, so then I was, was introduced to, the, to these mysterious stone structures of Southern Africa um, and, and the obsession with gold and the, the very important um, role that Southern Africa played in gold mining that go back to, as I said, to the Roman times, to the Phoenician times, to the, the Makumati, the Hindu Dravidian um, periods of 2,000 mm-hmm. years ago. And even before that, there are some archaeologists that have um, and geologists that have shown me evidence that clearly shows that the the Makumati people, the Hindu Dravidian gold miners, were here already three thousand years ago, a thousand years before Christ, mm. were active gold mining in Southern Africa, and many of the stone structures they left behind actually show evidence and proof of their presence here, and the the, the shrines and the dolmen and so forth they were left behind by the hundreds yeah. and thousands. Um, so that, that, that also then leads us to the, the in, interesting um, um, mystery of King Solomon and his gold mines, right? In the, mm-hmm. the, the land of, of Queen Sheba and the land of Sheba. Sure. And, and where were those gold mines? Because The relationship essentially of Israel and uh, the continent of Africa. Exactly. And once you start realizing that these stone structures are all linked to gold mining, and I'm going to show you why again, because, well, I might as well throw it in there. I've discovered at least 75,000, and I'm saying at least 75,000 ancient gold mines, but yeah. it probably runs to the millions of gold mines. Oh, because my the, word. Yeah, no, the, the, this, is, this, this gets crazy. So you start to see that when you start stacking the odds, uh, they very quickly start adding up to supporting the philosophy of that this is the Abzu that the yeah. Sumerian tablets talk about. Oh, and so you're really is, in your way answering that question. Yes, I get yeah. it. Yeah. So if you're looking for where the gold came from, there is no other place that can, that can support more than 10 million stone structures all connected to gold mining, um, at least 75,000 gold mines, and then to mm-hmm. the mysterious references of the Anunnaki, the, the, the biblical references to the geographical positions, the linking to Enki, his activities here, and then also <coughs> using other, um, other less conventional uh, methods of scientific methods of quantum connectedness and people that use 
use you know advanced knowledge that has not necessarily been accept, accepted by mainstream uh, mainstream science and I use mainstream possibly we should start using as as um, the the uh, dumbed downstream <laughs> maybe we yes, should use right. that, that expression the dumbed downstream of science which refuses to open <laughs> their eyes to 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 the real real issues at hand here um, yes and and the measurements the, the energetic measurements of some of these sites that clearly linked NT to all of this activity in spectacular mm-hmm. um so here we have um just to give you a bit of history about the how the these these mysterious stone structures in South Africa have been exposed to the world it is in itself a fascinating story because it, it mm-hmm. goes back to about um, 150 years ago, to the mid-1800s, uh, when some you know, explorers came through southern Africa and started writing. Um, Mauch, I think, was one of the early ones, and Caton Thompson was another uh, researcher, archaeologist that came from uh, England. Mauch, I think, mm-hmm. came from Germany. And they started writing about these mysterious stone structures, including Great Zimbabwe, which is a very spectacular ancient settlement ruins um, mm-hmm. that are directly linked to the Anunnaki and, and Enki. And they knew nothing about those structures. I mean, they were making spectacular you know, links to whatever their ability was based on other historic books that they were reading and so forth. And, um, but they left behind some important information. For me, by mm-hmm. far, the most important information that was given to us uh, from from that period comes from um, um, Theodore Bent, who was a British archaeologist, explorer that was sent here to Southern Africa. He traveled extensively throughout South Africa, Botswana and Zimbabwe and Mozambique over a two-year period and wrote uh, an incredible book about the, the vanished civilizations of Mashanulay. And he talks mm-hmm. about these structures. And... and he already, in those days, in the late 1800s, um, and he died in 1905, I think it was, from malaria, and mm-hmm. he writes in great detail, and he was also the first guy to really excavate Great Zimbabwe, and very clearly writes about an, uh, a series of ancient civilizations, vanished civilizations, that were involved in gold mining. His research mm-hmm. is completely ignored by mainstream academia. Just completely ignored. And he talks about layers and layers of sediments that he found that indicates to civilization upon civilization that were involved in mining gold at Great Zimbabwe, over and above the other stone structures that he refers to in Southern Africa that are all connected. And um, he, at that stage, estimated from horseback. Now, imagine, just traveling at at those times must have been really tough in Southern Surely. Africa, because you're always in danger of being eaten by lions, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and we don't realize that today. You know, we drive around here and we don't realize that even, even 60 or 70 years ago, where I live yeah. today, if you went for a walk in the mountains, there was a good chance you're going to be caught, you know, caught and, and eaten by some, some lions. Wow. And <laughs> we forget those things, you know? <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, right. Uh, so the arrogance of our civilization, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. when these guys write, you've got to respect the effort they put into their research at the time that they were doing it. 
So Theodore Bent estimates in his time that there were at least 4,000 of these stone structures scattered throughout southern Africa. Mm-hmm. By 1971, um, a guy called Roger Summers, who wrote three or four books, I think, about the stone structures of southern Africa and the vanished civilizations, um, estimated, and he did a beautiful calculation with far more you know, evidence and aerial photography at that stage, um, mm-hmm. and he estimated 20,000 of these stone ruins. Now, when you start going to those numbers already, you start going, hold on, buddy, something is wrong with this equation. Because all of our history books tell us that Southern Africa was a sparsely populated part of the world with only a few thousand hunter-gatherers that were roaming around, the Khoisan people running around, you know, hunting the odd deer here and there, and Mm -hmm. nothing of consequence or nothing of any substance ever came from Southern Africa. That's what all our history books tell us, like clockwork, right? Well, yes. w- when you start showing evidence of at least 20,000 mysterious stone structures that we have no idea where they came from, from those times, that already defies the logic, doesn't it? Yep, yep. Because Definitely. if you have more than 20,000 stone structures, but... Uh, about, you know, until a thousand years ago, there were no more than about 5,000 people scattered throughout Southern Africa. That's what these history books claim, ignorantly. It doesn't make any sense. Just, Um, if you would, spell spell his name, Roger Summons? Summers, as in summer. Oh, summer, okay, Summers, got it, okay. Roger Summers, yes. And, you and draw, I mean, your your story is so compelling, Michael. It's so interesting. I would just, uh, because we're beginning to run out of time here, I do want to just ask this question. Have you drawn any parallels between the stone structures that you've come across and that Summers has come across in uh, South Africa and those in uh, the British Isles, needless to say, what you'd find in Stonehenge or Glastonbury or other structures in Ireland or Scotland. Oh, absolutely. Um, Stonehenge, by the way, is a lot older than than the stone structures we find in southern Africa and probably comes from really? a much earlier civilization. Uh, and I can tell you categorically that Stonehenge, and we can get into that in in, um, in the Netherlands, in Hilversum, yes. where I can tell you, I'll show you the evidence that Stonehenge yes. is probably more than a million years old. And I'll show oh, you photographic evidence of that. It's yes. so obvious. When you see it, when you see it um, Mitchell, I, I first discovered this when I went to Stonehenge myself. And I deal yes. with stone on a daily basis. So I have a yes. different relationship with stone and rock structures than most people have. Um, mm-hmm. So I see things and, and I, I'm, I have the ability to analyze it a lot quicker than others. Um, yes. And, when I, saw, when I walked into Stonehenge in 2010, early 2010, for the first time in my life, I mm-hmm. nearly fell on my back when I, what I saw. And I, and I kept asking the people that took me there, and I spent an hour in the middle of Stonehenge, so I was right up in, in between the rocks with, with yes. an expert who been studying Stonehenge for 30 years and more. And mm. uh, really, so I've got wonderful photographic evidence of what I'm referring to. But just to give yeah. you a hint, the erosion, the erosion patterns on the, the, the Sarsen stone at Stonehenge leave us with absolutely no doubt from a geological perspective that we're dealing with structures that are way more than half a million, million years old. 
And yes, Stonehenge is also an energy-generating device. In fact, yes. all structures are energy-generating devices. And that yeah. brings me back to why can I make such a statement? Well, because of the stone structures in Southern Africa. So when I got mm-hmm. involved in 2007, within six months, I realized that we've, we're dealing with at least 100,000 of these stone structures, at least 100,000. But I wanted to corroborate that, and I started counting them using Google and aerial photography, finding yeah. these densely, densely clustered areas throughout South Africa and Zimbabwe and Botswana, and they scattered all over in, in huge quantities. And I counted a lot more than I ever dreamt in my wildest dreams, as I mentioned mm-hmm. already. came up with a number that exceeds 10 million, not 4,000, not 20,000, wow. not 100,000, wow in excess of 10 million of these stone structures. Mm. And in that second, when that realization hits you, you know for sure that we're dealing with a vanished civilization that we have never come face to face with and we know absolutely nothing about. Mm. Indeed. I understand. It's footprints in the sand that have disappeared, yet there are physical structures that remain and can be interpreted as you are doing. Michael, this is utterly, completely fascinating. Excuse me. um, Just just to finish off, I think we got about four minutes left, I think. Yeah, just just a little less than that. Yeah. How this can be linked to advanced technology technology and advanced knowledge. Indeed. uh, I, I I link very clearly all of this to gold mining, to many of the translations in the Sumerian texts given to us by Sitchin. When Sitchin made those translations, he had no idea that I would discover the physical evidence. And therefore, I'm so confident that what Sitchin was writing was absolutely correct. Whatever detractors he might have out there have no idea what they're talking about. Come and talk to me. I'll show you the physical evidence of what Sitchin has been writing about. So you can stop doubting me. I met... I met Sitchin back in the early 90s in New York. Oh, yeah. What was your take on the man? My take, honestly, and I've read some of his material, of course, is that he was right on target. I didn't want to fully admit it because it was a little, uh, you know, woo-woo. And I guess I can be that way, too. But uh, the reality is that in my gut, I felt the man was completely onto it. And that's how I feel now as I'm listening to you, Michael. Well, one of Sitchin's works, he says, in the deep abzu, uh, and I don't have the translation in front of me, but it's in all my presentations, and I'll probably be quoting this in in Hilversum in my presentation just to link the energy devices. He says, in the deep abzu, where he found the gold, he determined uh, where the, the heroes should dig the, 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 the tunnels into the, into the earth and he, uh, so that they could ex- get the golden veins out of, out of the earth. And he also created what he refers to as the earth splitter, with which a gash in the earth to make to expose the rich golden veins. And the earth splitter, ah. the architects refer re- repeatedly to technology that 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 reverberates or or um, vibrates, uh, resonates and vibrates. So they keep referring to 
frequency and resonance. Exactly, I understand. We're going to have to leave it at that point, which is utterly fascinating, uh, and know that we will have you back on this show. To you have to add the word storyteller to your biography on your resume because you really are a wonderful weaver of story in the true and the highest sense that is, Michael. Please know that's well, what I mean. It's yeah. Thank yeah. you so much, Michael. And uh, there's so much more to this that is it's it's far more exciting than any Indiana Jones movie, I can tell you that. Indeed, I understand. Your website is michaeltellinger.com, correct? That's right. That's right. MichaelTillinger.com. Wonderful. Well, we'll speak again, and we will see each other in a matter of a couple of weeks, and we will carry on this conversation. And I know you are leaving our audience in suspense, and we will uh, get back to them with another episode on A Better World. Michael Tellinger, thank you so much for being on today's show. Thank you, Mitchell. Absolutely. This is Mitchell J. Rabin. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. And remember to visit us at our website, www.abetterworld.tv. We will be continuing with Michael Tellinger. And in the meantime, do consider attending the conference in Hilversum. If you go to our website, abetterworld.tv, there is information about it right there on the homepage. Thanks again for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.